Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everybody and welcome to this event which the Institute of Government is delighted to bring to you in partnership with our very good friends at the RSPB. Uh, we're looking today at the internal market, the UK internal market, some words we've and you just had to get to grips with and what it might mean for the environment. Well, we're also going to broaden, if we can, and just say, actually, how likely is it that we're going to realise that ambition set out in the Conservatives' 2019 man manifesto, which was that they wanted regulatory autonomy from the EU. We know that's a prime negotiating objective of the UK team, uh, just heading to Brussels now for the ninth round of talks but they wanted the right to diverge upward from EU standards. Uh, let's not say, well, actually, you could have done that while we were still EU members, but let's just say there is a high level of environmental ambition that people voted for last December. They also said that they want to adopt policies that are more appropriate for the UK or indeed England uh, than the one-size-fits-all approach that we're obviously forced to adopt as EU members, where policies were designed for the 27, not for the one or four. Um, the Environment Bill, uh, which was supposed to establish the sort of uh, machinery for post-Brexit uh, governance in the UK, we're going to discuss that as well. That's delayed, and Environment Secretary George Eustace said that that wouldn't be coming back into Parliament probably until early in the year, new year. So we will see at least a temporary governance gap there. We also haven't yet seen the sort of final views on common frameworks. Uh, we also have the government maybe having slightly second thoughts in England about just quite how purist will they be over the payment for public goods model that Michael Gove's Environment Secretary designed to replace the cap. And you could say, certainly from an environmental point of view, it was one of the big first opportunities from Brexit. Um, but the last few weeks have been overshadowed by a massive row over the internal market bill. Uh, that Massivo row largely focused on whether the UK was right or wrong, uh, unjustified in its threats to break international law by reneging on some minor elements of the, uh, of the withdrawal agreement agreed last year, potentially paving the way for reneging on some slightly more major elements of that. But actually, there was a second row as well which was a row between the UK government and the governments of Scotland and Wales over some of the principles they were introducing to make the UK internal market function. And those are the sorts of questions we're going to be answering today. And hopefully by the end of the next hour, we'll have a view on whether the post-Brexit regime uh, comprised of all these different elements. And of course, a regime in which the UK is aiming to conclude separate trade agreements with people like the US, Australia and New Zealand is actually going to be good for the environment or is a threat to the environment. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. So this is going to be very interesting. Joining me are, in no particular order, Martin Harper. Martin is the Director of Global Conservation for the RSPB, which sounds like a very big job. Um, so. Glad to have Martin with us. Dr. Vivian Gravy. Dr. Gravy is a lecturer at Queen's University Belfast. Then moving on to Dr. Emily Lydgate, 
a senior lecturer in environmental law at the University of Sussex and a member of the UK Trade Policy Observatory, at least I hope she still is. And last but by no means least, Gail Soutard. Gail is Chief Advisor on EU Exit and International Trade at the National Farmers Union. For those of you wondering why an environmental uh, panel we have somebody from the NFU, just remember that actually land management is a massive issue for the environment. So there's going to be loads of opportunities to ask questions. Please post your questions and we really want this to be the discussion you want. We could go into the weeds of the internal market bill uh, or we could broaden it out, but that's in your hands. So get posting away. Our panel are ready for either eventuality. And I'm just going to start off with a sort of brief, let's establish the facts. So Vivian, let me come to you first. How exactly is environment policy supposed to operate after Brexit? Now, I'm going to sort of challenge you. This isn't quite just a minute. You are allowed to repeat and deviate briefly. But if you could give us the sort of uh, quick three, four minute summary of how will environment policy operate after Brexit? You can start now. OK, uh, so thank you very much. So as everyone knows, we're out of the European Union, where for the last 40 years we've helped develop environmental policy and governance, building the most ambitious set of environmental rules globally. In some of these areas, the UK was a leader, in other it was a laggard. The picture is actually more complex once we start looking inside the UK, because Wales and Scotland in some areas were actually more ambitious, um, and Northern Ireland, on the other hand, was lagging behind. Brexit, as we know, is about taking back control. Environmental policy, but in many ways, is actually about cooperation of how we can tackle shared challenges across borders. And so you've got attention there around how we can take back control in a way that works for the environment. So we've got key issues about how environmental policy cooperation is going to be possible between the four nations, between Northern Ireland and Ireland, on the island of Ireland, between the UK and the EU. Who gets to take back that control? How much divergence between the four nations is acceptable? How much external divergence with the EU, as we know from the Conservative Manifesto, or with the US in, uh, in case of a future trade agreement? And how will this control that we're taking back will be used? Will the environment be a priority that drives all other public policy or not? So we've got these big questions around divergence, around governance, and we know, I mean, these are not new issues. The EU had to grapple with it for 40, 60 years. Now it's time for the UK to grapple with it. And the internal market bill is just one of the many pieces of that post-Brexit policy jigsaw. Uh, the big ones of the words are the environmental bill, the agricultural bill, the trade bill, so the kind of public policy agenda. Uh, that is, of course, a devolved agenda as well that runs in parallel. The common frameworks that we talked a lot about in 2017, 2018, in which we would finally have proper intergovernmental policymaking in the UK, right? We, for now, we have either acting alone or Westminster acting for the whole of the UK. We don't really have a way for the four nations to agree and to push forward policy. And that's one of the big things that is missing still. That intergovernmental re review that we keep on hearing about, we're going to change how the UK works internally, that's still missing in action. And finally, we've got this internal market bill that promises a lot of things, but appears uh, to push for a lot of centralization and perhaps not really listening to devolved interests or to uh, put the environment as central uh, as the EU internal market is, uh, as it is in the EU internal market. So to answer the question of where we are at, we're still in a big sea of uncertainties. We still don't know exactly where we're going at. We have 
a lot of very positive words from the government, for, actually from most of the four governments, even like from all four governments, everyone wants to do very ambitious things, but time is running out and in practice, nothing is going to be ready for the 1st of January. So nothing is ready, but there are lots of bits of governance and a quite a confused picture going forward. Um, Emily, let me come to you next. Can you just tell us the internal market bill on the face of it doesn't sound as though it's about the environment. So how does the internal market bill potentially impact the environment for good or bad? Emily. I mean, I think that it probably um, sort of deepens uh, the environmental identity crisis that Vivian identified. Um, I mean, I think that much of our attention post-Brexit in terms of trade and, and regulatory issues has been focused on Northern Ireland, and of course, rightly so, because the stakes are so high. But there's probably been less appreciation of the fact that the EU also provided the framework for seamless internal trade uh, between uh, all the other countries of the, of the UK, and that's what, what the internal market bill targets. Um, and I think the trouble with this bill is that the core of, of the any approach to the internal market that's as integrated as the UK has got to be harmonized rules that have some sort of a strong joint consultative framework behind them. And that's essentially what the EU did, you know, a, quite a formalized approach to setting regulations which involved the Commission and the Parliament and the Council coming up with, well, this is what we're going to standardize so we can have free movement. Um, and the UK has, has been trying to repli replicate this with this kind of non-statutory process of setting out common frameworks, which I don't think is anyone is really clear on kind of where that's at or, or, or what, what's going to happen with that. Um, but this, this whole process of common frameworks, which of course encompasses a lot of important environmental areas, is completely absent from the internal market bill. It's not clear how the common frameworks, if agreed, would enter into things. And in a sense, it allows common frameworks to be completely stripped out um, to bring about frictionless trade through mutual recognition, which is to say allowing in different products, um, allowing in products even if they have different regulation. So that's really, I think, the core of the approach of the Internal Market Bill, this very, very powerful mutual recognition principle. And the interesting thing about that is that it seems to promise greater powers for devolved administrations, but in perversely in practice would probably do just the opposite of that. Um, because of England's relative size and, and market power, and I'll give you some sort of environmentally specific examples of that. I think food standards and food safety is really significant here. So, uh, for example, in post-Brexit uh, legislation, England could authorize new active substances for pesticides. It could approve chlorinated chicken, new GMOs, food additives. That's all in. That's all devolved in in the sort of statutory instruments post-Brexit. Um, but basically what that means is you could, like Scot say Scotland could bar its own producers from using these things, but it would still have to import them from England because the scope of the uh, exceptions to this principle are, are very narrow. So in my reading, they would essentially be forced to import them. So what that means is that they could be competitively undercut and, and effectively this, this would undermine the permitted divergence. So I think that's where a lot of the concerns lie. Um, and I think the fact that the Scottish government has explicitly put forth this Scottish continuity agreement that specifies that it will continue to align with EU regulation is also really significant here. Um, 
and particularly if that impacts on trade. And again, I'll just give you one example, which is endocrine disruptors. So the EU has been contemplating introducing stricter controls on these. They would impact on a whole host of sectors, uh, cosmetics, food, contact, material, toys. Um, again, if, 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 the e, if the UK as a whole decided we're not going to introduce these product restrictions in Scotland, which has said that it's going to align with, with EU regulation, decided that they are, um, well, the, these market access principles in, in the internal market bill would, would effectively mean that Scotland was imposing these strict requirements domestically while still being required to import these non-complying products. And I think that in a sense, that the, the issue with the internal market bill is, is, is that it didn't seem to involve a very consultative process with, with bringing in the, the devolved nations. So I'll stop there. Okay, I'm going to come over to Martin now. So Vivian's painted this picture of quite a, um, let's say, work in progress framework for developing environmental policy uh, after Brexit. And Emily's alerted us to some of the potential negative consequences of the internal market bill, or at least a limitation discretion on some of the devolved administrations do things differently from England, which obviously is uh, disproportionate in the UK. So from the point of view of the RSPB, from the point of view, you know, the issues you're concerned about, where do you see the real sort of threats in the internal market bill? And where, where do you see some opportunities? Indeed, if you do see some opportunities, Martin. Yeah, well, I think Emily's laid out the risks really uh, well. And also Vivian has reminded us that Brexit has essentially um, provided the largest level of disruption to environmental law and uh, uh, governance for the last 40 years. And of course, disruption can be good or bad. And I think essentially what we've seen in every part of sort of post-Brexit policy is a mixture of jeopardy uh, and opportunity. And I think in the internal markets bill, what we're mainly concerned is that essentially it will disincentivize high ambition from any one of the four um, UK administrations. So it would sort of, sort of chill environmental ambition. Uh, and I can add a couple of examples to Emily's. So for example, the Welsh government at the moment wants to um, ban um, nine single-use plastics items, for example, whereas I think the UK government only wants to ban three. That essentially means that six of those items could still be sold under the principles of mutual recognition in Wales. So essentially, the Welsh government's policy objective, which is a good one, would essentially be undermined through the rules laid out through the internal market bill. So the other context, which perhaps we haven't mentioned, is that we're actually in a planetary emergency. Um, we're facing a climate crisis, and of course, we've got a catastrophic loss of biodiversity, which the Prime Minister rightly been talking about today at the Biodiversity Summit in the UN. So the last thing that we want is anything that undermines political ambition in this area. And our concern is that the internal market bill will do exactly that. We'll have a, arguably a race to the bottom rather than a race to the top. So Martin, why do you think it's going to be a race to the bottom? I'm sort of intrigued by this because the government has set out its ambition. It's put uh, its target for net zero into UK law and says it wants to do that. As you said, the Prime Minister's committed today to protect 30% wasn't clear whether it was of the UK or of England. I think it, on that he could probably only talk for England, but 30% of the land mass for the environment. So, so why are you so sceptical that the government's actions will not match its rhetoric, if you like? Uh, 
So you're right to challenge me back, but we're also wise to be cautious in this area um, because obviously words are words. What we're looking for is legal targets for the environment enshrined in legislation under the proposed environment, which is yet to come back to um, the House of Parliament. And we need equivalent uh, ambition on the four countries of the UK. Um, but I think that you know, the, the leap from where we are from where we, and where we need to get to in terms of environmental performance is huge. Uh, and anything that constrains that would certainly, you know, um, I think, uh, hold us back. And what I thought was really noticeable in the Prime Minister's, you know, laudable announcement today about 30% of land and sea to be protected um, and well managed for nature by 2030, and he was referring only to England, there's this little subclause in the press comment saying that the discussions with the devolved administrations are still to be had. And I think there's this wider point about how the four administrations across the UK have a more mature relationship in terms of driving up high ambition. To be honest, I have no doubt actually that um, political leaders across the four parts of the UK want high environmental performance. Um, but at the same time, economic imperatives sometimes come to the fore and history tells us they can include environmental concerns. And the Internal Markets Bill has a very strong economic framing. It doesn't yet appear consistent with the government's wider ambitions such as on the environment. And unless or until we've actually got the legislation in place around the Environment Bill, I would have concern that the Internal Markets Bill and indeed subsequent trade policies could undermine those, um, those, those, those commitments. I think we're going to explore some of those issues in more depth in a second. Um, I just want to come on finally to bring Gail in. Gail, you're sitting there in the NFU. Um, farming is going to face quite a big change, I think, um, uh, after Brexit. Are your members sort of reassured by, say, provisions in the Internal Market Bill that if they, even if they're meeting and producing to English standards, they can still sell north of the border, or are they worried about how things are going to change after Brexit? Gail. Thanks, Jill. Um, I think there is a degree of nervousness. I mean, we're leaving one common market and we obviously want to safeguard our own internal UK market. So um, farmers want to be able to supply consumers across the whole of the United Kingdom, whether they're in Scotland, England, uh, Wales or Northern Ireland. We are starting to see snippets of uh, issues emerge in terms of being able to supply Northern Irish farmers under uh, certain Northern Irish markets under uh, some of the terms of the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Irish Protocol. And I think you mentioned the, the big noise that came out around the UK internal market bill. And I think there was a, a huge amount of conflation of the issues within the UK internal market bill around um, GB farmers' ability to continue to supply Northern Ireland. But it does give um, a hint at some of the issues that could come to the fore if we do uh, move away from a common market across uh, Great Britain. Um, no farmer wants to see any kind of hindrance or barrier to trading within Scotland, England, uh, Wales. The, the question is, how do you go about uh, doing that? Um, and it was quite interesting that the, the government came out with the white paper, the command paper in, in August, and then literally a month later comes out with it bill. So, you know, this uh, UK internal market bill has been you know, very short in its um, is an incubation and um, a release. 
And we are concerned that it does seem to have um, almost railroaded the approach that had been uh, discussed around common frameworks and you know, a conciliatory approach to, to policy making. On one hand, farmers want to make sure we have that um, uh, unfettered access across the whole of the UK internal market, but there's ways and means that you can go about doing that. And I think there are concerns that uh, with the UK internal market bill, um, that this may well lead to uh, friction, it may well lead to acrimony in terms of some of the devolved uh, administrations. The reality is, is that at the end of the day, farmers want to make sure that the public policy, the, the legal framework, the common frameworks, um, that it's all there in place to ensure that we continue to have that um, unfettered access across the, the UK internal, internal market. So I think there is a degree of nervousness uh, out there amongst amongst farmers. Um, there's also a huge amount of optimism and excitement about the future. You know, we've been promised to, to take back control of our, uh, our rules and our, our regulations. So this government has an opportunity to really put in place the, the policies which will um, ensure that UK farmers can continue to be those global leaders in, in environmental climate change and climate friendly practices. Um, and we're we're obviously working our way through the agriculture bill, the trade bill, the UK internal market bill, um, the environmental bill. There's a, a very diverse public policy uh, landscape out there. But um, as Vivian mentioned earlier, none of it has quite come to fruition yet. So there is a huge degree of um, nervousness in terms of well, what is actually going to be in place from the 1st of January um, and how how robust is it actually going to be um, for, for UK farmers? That's uh, that's very interesting. I want to just pick up one or two things. First, we look at the internal market bill. I'm not going to stay totally on the internal market bill all the time, but come in. We've got a question from Mary. Mary's asked, is there scope for the introduction of significant standards rules before the IMB is introduced? Well, let's say before it gets on the statute book, because it's already been introduced and it's already going through, it's gone, going through its remaining common stages this week, I think, e.g. regarding plastics in Wales, thereby evading mutual recognition. I'm not sure evading is quite the right word, but uh, I think we get the gist of what Mary's after. Um, I think uh, and that's an interesting idea, but I'm very interested in all of your ideas on actually how could we change the internal market bill to make it more reassuring, if you like, give a bit more of sort of honest intent if the government really, really doesn't want it to lead to a race to the bottom. Vivian, you want to, you're very keen to come in on this. I'm going to go around all of you, though. I'm going to put you on warning there. Vivian. What Mary's asking about is, the provision that actually in the mutual recognition and non-discrimination principle only apply to policies that were not in place before the bill comes in. So especially for the devolved, like Wales, for example, uh, has this um, consultation on plastics. Um, we also have similar queries around GMOs, for example. You know, the devolved could basically go on a legislative spree or, or on a secondary legislation spree to just put a lot of their standards before the, the the law comes in and in many ways they should they should i mean if this is a policy this is a central policy objective for them they need to make sure that it, it is it is there and that it will be able to apply and definitely i mean the example that martin was talking about with around plastics we know scotland wants to do the same um it is all about making sure that these 
policies that are flagship policies for the devolved land registration. They may look like they're very min like minor regulatory changes for in London, but they, they are flagship policies sometimes in devolved. That's how the devolved show that they can do things different. That's how they create the legitimacy as well, that they show they tailor things to their own people. And so they should go on this legislative spree now before the bill actually is finalized. In a so, way as well, the fact yeah. that they are trying to do that is also a negotiation, like a negotiating plot, that position vis-a-vis -vis Westminster, right? So if you don't want us to just put is a silly amount of red tape on the statute book. Now you need to actually go back to the negotiation table and we need to make sure that, for example, we prioritize common frameworks and mutual recognition only applies in cases where we have not been able to find a common framework. And that first we have this setup, this organization of, you know, we try to find common framework for two years or something like that. Before, so it's all about trying to reconnect these different dots. But I think what we're, what Mary is pointing out is here actually there is a bit of a loophole currently in how the bill is put up, and if the devolves are really worried, they should just go get legislating. Okay, legislative free time. Good point, Mary. Uh, Martin, you wanted to come in on that. You probably got some draft legislation you dreamt up earlier, but anyway. No, we haven't. I mean, and Vivian's it's a very helpful signal to all the all administrations, actually. And the thing I, I suppose I was observing is that um, I believe that the bill's already been amended to um, uh, to make some issues exempt. I think in terms of uh, food and animal health, for example, I think they, they have made some amendments to Schedule 1. So essentially, they, they've started to list a, a load of derogations. And of course, under the um, our previous arrangement of the uh, Treaty for the Function of the European Union, there was actually an ability for uh, member states to go uh, beyond uh, what the rest of the EU was obliging in terms of um, certain things, including the environment. And so I think if there was a specific clause which allowed for high ambition and divergence on, for example, environmental protection grounds, that would be the um, simplest, if crudest, mechanisms to allow different uh, parts of the UK to absolutely deliver that race to the top, which is what we all want. It's about innovation, it's about trying things, other parts of the UK, learning from what other countries are doing, and, and rather than inhibiting that uh, sort of innovation, one should be looking to encourage it. And so that would be the specific change rather than perhaps listing every single um, element of environmental protection in a schedule. Emily, is that feasible? Do you think the UK could do that? You mean amend the list of exceptions? And, yeah, have a sort of reasonable list of exemptions that would give, uh, give the devolves the right to do that. I'm just wondering how extensive that could be because uh, obviously product standards are one thing where actually it's embedded in that product but when you get into some of these process things or the way in which you approach land management or you know some things martin might care about like i don't know sssis or the birds i mean how far up the environmental chain can you go if you think those are having impacts on business competitiveness well, I mean, I, it sounds like I need to get up to speed on Schedule One because last time I checked, it was uh, <laughs> it was very, very narrow and sort of just things that corresponded with the RASP. It was sort of things like really serious foodborne um, illness or product recalls due to safety concerns were the only kind of exemptions for mutual recognition. So, but uh, if I if I misstated that because I haven't checked the latest amendments, I apologize. Um, and absolutely, I would say if you wanted to um, amend the Internal Market Bill. 
um, expanding the exemptions is is the is an obvious uh, step. Um, and I think even just bringing it in line with 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 the EU, the EU provides mutual recognition principle provides a pretty open ended scope for member states to argue that that their that their um, exemption is legitimate. So then you get into the role of the courts. You know, the courts are going to have to determine what, you know whether this is, is legitimate under the listed exemption. But I would definitely say yes, it's a no brainer. Expand the list of exemptions. Um, another thing, just getting back to the bigger question you asked of how to make this more sort of um, more balanced in terms of devolved um, nations is that there's quite a lot of um, scope for um, the, the UK to amend things um, using delegated le legislation. So, for example, right now, um, the Secretary of State, the Bay Secretary of State can change the Schedule 1 exemptions. Again, I hope this has been changed since I last checked, but um, you know that that's just in a sense preposterous because it means that the U on a centralized UK level, the UK can can change the list of what is and is not a permitted um, exemption. Um, same with the, the services uh, area. Uh, there's there's a list of um, which service areas are are um, covered in this, and that again can be modified by the Secretary of State. And I, I think th those are just sort of low hanging fruit in terms of what, what could we change to make this better? OK, well, we're expecting uh, expecting the bill to face quite a rough passage when it gets to the House of Lords. So I think hopefully some Lords are on the call and taking notes of some of the areas where they might see some amendments being proposed by the RSPB and others. Gail, I want to come to you in terms of the sort of functioning of the UK internal market slightly off the subject of the internal market bill per se but one of the really interesting things was the uh, envisaged new payment scheme for farmers that Michael Gove proposed which I know a lot of you know people environmentalists were very enthusiastic that we were repurposing that cap money from income support to pure payment for public goods how worried are sort of farmers in England that they will be competing on a non-level playing field with farmers in Scotland and Wales and potentially Northern Ireland as well who may still get some sort of income support. Is that an area of concern for your members and how do you see that developing going forward? Yeah it definitely is an area of concern and um, again it comes back to the kind of um, disorganised nature of where we are with government policy. I mean, it's still not entirely clear what the future environmental land management scheme is going to be for farmers um, in England. Um, it's due to, to come in 2023, 2024, but there's very, very little details about that um, as yet. Uh, what we do know is that there continues to be the plan to start phasing out the old um, cap payments, the basic payment scheme in England. Uh, next year. So from an English farmer's perspective, they feel like as if they are um, at the start of an almost untested experiment and journey in terms of moving away from the, the basic payment scheme towards this new environmental uh, land management scheme. Um, ironically, bringing it back to the internal market bill once again, I mean, there are provisions in the internal market bill around ensuring that the uh, there's not, well, that, that, that the minister can regulate against um, trade distorting uh, subsidies. So I think there would be um, uh, some powers at the Westminster level to put some disciplines on what the devolves can do in terms of trade distorting policy. But given 
we're all sitting with um, the basic payment scheme at the moment, a green box payments based on additional cost income for gone. It's, it's not deemed to be um, uh, trade distorting. I think the UK Internal Market Bill will actually do very little to, to reassure farmers in England that they're not going to be disadvantaged by the approach of going to, to Elms. And um, there will be some uh, protections to say against you know, some you know, really damaging trade distorting subsidies being, being introduced, but very little in terms of actual um, direction uh, or reassurement for uh, English uh, farmers. Um, the NFU and, and others have put together a, a proposal which we have um, you know, submitted to government around how we um, bring in every farmer in, in England into the model of um, payments um, for public goods. And that's something that um, if you haven't had a chance to, to, to look at, I'd certainly encourage you to take a look at the, the white paper from the NFU and the other farming organisations. And it's all about um, being able to access um, uh, funds. Um, you know, every farm is, is unique in, in Britain. They're all farming in different op different ways, different farmed environments. So there needs to be a way for, for every farmer to be able to um, aspire to do that little bit more for the environment and their sustainability and to be able to access uh, government funds to support that if the market doesn't um, uh, compensate them for those additional costs. Martin. I mean, in, in in some ways, I mean, Gail has begun to outline some of our concerns in a way in that if if the internal market build and future trade policy is all about trying to ensure, you know, um, individual businesses uh, are able to flourish and there's, you know, no one's at competitive disadvantage, then there is a danger that will actually thwart environmental um, ambition. Because what we need, you know, we, we are, as you said right from the outset, we are not going to deliver our nature and climate objectives across the United Kingdom without a reform to farming policy in the four nations of the UK, because something like 75% of our land is farmed, uh, which is why we were very supportive of UK governments and Welsh governments' ambitions to actually move towards a different system of support for farmers to reward them um, for managing the land, which is good for nature, good for water protection, good, good for carbon storage. Um, and the one thing that uh, we have a great opportunity on, and I'm sure, you know, um, NFU and RSPB are absolutely on the same page on this, is that um, the Common Agricultural Policy currently provides about £3.1 billion um, into the countryside to UK farmers. Uh, and we absolutely will still need that money. But, you know, from an English context, for example, um, we'll need a lot, most of that um, in order to deliver any of our environmental objectives on, 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 on farmed land. And we'll need farmers to be rewarded for delivering those right things which is why the direction of travel outlined um, by Michael Gove and picked up again by this government and George Eustace is the right one. Um, but we the test ultimately will be whether in the future there is more wildlife on farmers' land, there's more water stored, there's more carbon retained. And that's the ultimate test, which is why this, the detail matters of these schemes. Uh, and it would be appalling, I think, if, for example, uh, degree, uh, concerns about competitiveness was to thwart ambition to design the right schemes tailored to the different geographies of the UK to deliver that sort of restoration, which the UK government has highlighted today with its 30% of land to be well protected and well managed from nature by 2030. So, so um, while it doesn't necessarily directly relate to the Internal Market Bill, anything to do with trade needs to be linked more coherent with the government's wider environmental commitments and ambitions. 
we've just had a very interesting exchange in the chat between Mary and Sharon on uh, where Sharon has thrown a bit of a damper on Vivian's legislative spree by saying certainly in the Welsh Assembly they've uh, they've sort of run out of time to do that. So um, maybe it depends on when the Internal Market Bill actually gets through, but uh, but that's not quite the possibility, whatever. Um, Martin just mentioned trade policy. I just wanted to come on to that. Obviously, one of the things the Internal Market Bill is trying to do is to give the UK government enough assurance about compliance uh, from the devolves that it can negotiate trade deals. Um, Emily, uh, you're a trade, trade person. Um, how is this sort of trade and environment nexus? How do we, how do other countries manage the relationship between their trade policy and their environment policy to make sure that trade policy doesn't undermine their ability to impose their own environmental standards? Or should we just regard our environmental standards as being in play in every trade agreement we might enter into? Well, I think, I mean, that's obviously quite quite a question. Um, but I think I think we could we could sort of divide it into two halves, and I'll try to say sort of 30 seconds on each. Um, what one part of the question is about sort of how how do you deal with it when different regions or, or states within your own territory want to do different things environmentally? Um, and, and then how do you map that on to like what is your position with, with external trade partners? Um, and I think that's really what the what the UK needs to sort out pretty urgently right now. Um, and there's really a lot of different answers to this question. So, um, you know, it, for example, in the US, you, you can encounter quite a lot of um, internal trade barriers between states. So this is, this is the birthplace of the California effect, where um, California being such a big market influenced other states to put their in, um, environmental efficiency standards up. So, so it, it's totally possible for a country to tolerate um, trade barriers internally. Um, but obviously, the, with, with the UK, it's a bit of a special case because England has disproportionately so much economic power that there's a concern that it will, um, it will dictate uh, what the others do just using market power and sort of undermine devolution. So that's, so that's one set of concerns. And the other one is just the, the broader question about, well, does trade really undermine environmental standards and and you know i think that's really a depends on who you ask one so um you know a, a wto lawyer would say well that you know countries have the indisputed right to achieve the level of regulation they wish you know and uh, and the regulatory standards they wish and they have to and they can impose those on um on countries exporting and certainly you know anyone exporting to the eu knows that there's quite a lot of regulatory requirements to comply with um but i think that's really one of sort of the devil is in the details <laughs> Vivian, Robert Molden's asked a question. I want to pick up Emily's point there about the California effect, because as uh, as Emily was saying earlier, the reality of the UK is that there will be an England effect because it's so disproportionately big. Robert Molden's asked whether you know we should have something more like a sort of EU governance on a larger scale. You know, so uh, we hear about negotiations between the four nations. You know, IGR and all these bunches of initials, JMCs, which my IFG colleagues, that's another set of initials, are always writing nerdy things about. Apologies, guys. Um, but do we need something more formalised between the governments of the UK to make sure that it's just not? England decides and everybody else has to follow. Yes. 
um, I think this is something that uh, the Welsh government has been calling for since the beginning of the Brexit process. They've been trying to get this kind of council of minister type. Uh, so really leaving the EU while changing the UK to look a bit more like the EU, which is a difficult argument, right, to, uh, to put forward. But basically, I mean, if you want policies that are UK wide and are legitimate in areas of devolved competence, you need the four nations to be around the table. And there's issues that then how do you actually get agreement, right? Because if you, we give one nation one vote, then that's unfair for England, right? Which is so much bigger. But if it's only based on, uh, on population, again, that's unfair. So we might move into a very, very EU direction of QMV, another one of these <laughs> acronyms, so qualified majority voting. I mean, it is very complex, but we do need something in order to agree UK-wide policies in areas of devolved competence. That is not just something agreed in um, in Westminster, because the parties that represent the four nations in Westminster are not necessarily the parties that are actually important locally. I mean, if we just think of Northern Ireland, for example, that means, you know, Sinn Féin doesn't take their seat in the House of Commons. This means that, you know, if we use Westminster as a model to agree UK-wide policy, then a whole range of the Northern Irish population is not going to be represented in this UK-wide policy. So you do need a bit of that. And it is, uh, still very much missing in action for four or five years on. Martin. Yeah, I completely agree. I just build on that a little bit. I mean, I, I, I think in a sense, one wants, like anything in life, one wants co-ownership um, of the ultimate framework that within which the UK is going to be operating. Uh, and obviously, from an environmental point of view, as you said in your introduction, the European Union provided that common framework for the UK, and we haven't worked out what we're going to create. And that should be co-designed. I mean, everyone should have a stake in it. I mean, if the RSPB, you know, goes into a, an area and says we want to do this for nature, we'll get, you know, we get kicked out. And that's happened to us in the past. But you talk to people, you say, well, what do you want? And how do we get a shared vision for this? And how do we can we work together on terms of change? And we try and work. We don't always get it right. Try to work with farmers and other land managers and say, well, this is what we need. Um, and I think the same should apply with with with, with politicians. I mean, and a good example of this is over. You know, just the fact that the, you know, the UK is trying to negotiate a, a, a trade deal with um, the European Union and the European Union is obviously quite interested in ensuring a level playing field and good governance. And at the moment, we don't seem to have clarity yet as to what sort of governance will be put in place across the four countries of the UK to essentially replace some of those powers which the um, European institutions had. So so it's a bit of a more mature conversation. I think back in about 2018 or so, there was a common frameworks conversation going on between the UK government and the Devolves, and there were, were apparently quite good conversations um, developing, but that seems to have gone. And, and I, I fear that the internal markets bill might you know, cause a bit of ill will, and somehow we've got to scrabble back a more of a mature debate between the four nations and you know let's make sure that we see each other as equals and try and develop a future common framework for the UK now that the UK has voted to leave the European Union. So Martin a question from Tim what does the panel hope to see from common frameworks so and how would they like them to work with the internal market bill so Martin what would what would lead you to judge this is actually really a rather good common framework and I'm very pleased that in the background, they've got on and uh, developed this. This is really helpful. Well, so you, I think you can go from the micro all the way up to the macro. And so 
obviously one common framework is that the UK will actually be it's already signed up to global conventions on climate change commitments for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We hope and expect the UK will be signing up to um, uh, the Biodiversity Convention next year with really ambitious targets, which is relevant to today's announcement of 30% by 2030. So that's a common framework. But in the end, you need to then work out well, what does that mean in practice? What does that mean in terms of um, the scale and extent of land? What does it manage for nature? What does it mean for the future of farm policy? What should we be expecting in terms of um, the subsea regimes? So, so the common framework is going to go right up to the globe, and they're already there in terms of UK as a sovereign state signing up to conventions all the way down to, to even micro level. Um, and, and I would hope and expect in the different areas that it's, it becomes more custom in practice for the different ministers in those different dossiers to meet, to discuss, to say, what are we going to be doing in the future, rather than essentially having um, megaphone diplomacy, um, um, which obviously um, plays to individual four nations um, um, audiences. Let's have regular meetings of the ministers to talk in detail about what common frameworks are required, especially from an environmental point of view. Vivian, I'm going to come back in the last 10 minutes to talk about the wider environmental governance system we've got post-Brexit. But I just wanted to ask you, how does Northern Ireland fit in? So to what extent is environment policy in Northern Ireland still going to be determined by the Northern Ireland Protocol? To what extent is it different anyway, because it'll be governed on the island of Ireland uh, as a sort of single uh, biogeographic unit, words that Maddie Timmett Jack gave me to say, so I've done that. Uh, and to what extent is it part of a UK-wide four-nation framework? So we keep on saying four nations, so I'm never quite clear when we would mean three plus one or when we mean four. Vivian? I don't think anyone is really clear yet. So what we do know is that we have some pieces of EU environmental law um, that is in Annex 2 to the Protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland, that will that Northern Ireland will still have to uh, continue to apply. But there's a lot of gaps. So the, some of the key environmental piece of legislation you're thinking in terms of nature protection, in terms of water framework directive, that actually makes sense to implement on an island of Ireland wide basis are not in the protocol. The protocol is really about protecting the integrity of the EU internal market it's not about protecting the environment on the island of Ireland. So you're going to need cooperation in any way, north-south, beyond the protocol. And there's also like key gaps from such as the nitrous directive, for example, uh, that uh, is going to create potentially quite a bit of tensions between farmers north and south on the island if farmers in Ireland have to implement the nitrates directive, but not farmers in Northern Ireland. So you're going to have tension then. And of course, I mean, Relationship north and south and east and west, key relationships in terms of getting governance working in Northern Ireland, but the, on the environment side as well, are not, you know, they're going to be depending on the type of relationship the UK as a whole has with the, the EU. If relationships turn sour, it's going to be much harder for proper north-south cooperation on issues, massive issues. I mean, we have protected sites straddling the border. We've got water bodies straddling the border. We need common policies there. Uh, island north and south are really laggards when it comes to climate change objectives. We really need to step up, uh, but this is not going to be possible if you have a breakdown in relationship a breakdown in trust as you uh, as it appears that we're going for now. And do you detect any appetite in the executive to make use of the north-south sort of ministerial institutions 
to resolve some of those issues in between Northern Ireland and the Republic? I think, I mean, the executive, we have to remember, of course, for a long time in this Brexit process, we did not have an executive. And so in many ways, the executive is still playing catch up because all of the preparation needs to be done. This is the smallest administration. There was no politicians for a long time around. So we're behind on a lot of things. And a lot of this, uh, the, pro like the priority right now is just getting us to that first of uh, January and making sure that things kind of work in practice. The whole idea of spending time thinking about how we can make things better, this really looks like, you know, it would be great, but that's not a priority. So I think for now, I mean, there's no, not much discussion there, but I also think it's normal because we have to deal with so many crises first. And so I, I don't expect any uh, movement on like waste directive or or water framework directive really before we've settled the how are farmers going to get paid how what goods are going to come in where the checks are going to be that kind of uh, basic issues. I'm going to come on to environmental governance. Martin uh, GH, you posted the first question. Sorry, GH uh, was just asking about this position. We referred to lots of this legislation, but we know that it won't necessarily be in place at the beginning of the year. So. What does the sort of what do you think are the sort of you know strengths and potential sort of you know things to watch out for in the intended framework? And how worried are you, Martin, about the how we manage through the sort of potential environmental governance gap uh, on the first of January if the environment bill is further delayed? Yeah, I mean we, we, we we've been really worried that the, the, the bill is delayed because there's some really important principles in that Westminster um, legislation, which is trying to replace what was in place. Um, when we're members of the European Union. And of course, it's trying to do some really good things like um, establish legal targets to restore nature, um, but it's also got to try and um, replace some of the governance powers of the European institutions. So the so-called Office of Environmental Protection um, at the moment's probably got about three out of the five most important things we need in terms of being able to monitor, report and scrutinise government performance in terms of providing advice providing um, a complaint process for citizens to be able to comment if they're not content with what progress has been made by the government. Um, but there's issues around really, it hasn't really got teeth. It's not really providing anything beyond what the judicial review process is offering. And of course, it doesn't have any remedial powers essentially to say if something's gone really wrong, can you re replace the damage, you know, restore the damage that you've made? And of course, the Office of Environmental Protection's um, ge geographical remit is still being debated. Um, will it cover England and Northern Ireland? Um, but I think the under the continuity bill in Scotland, um, we are expecting a, a new body called, I think, the Environmental Standards Body in Scotland, um, but nothing yet being proposed in Wales. So at, when we remember of the European Union, we have we had a, a, a power which was European Court of Justice, which essentially was able to hold member states to account and potentially fine them for non-compliance. That doesn't exist. We've had to re replace something. And the, the real concern, of course, is that um, by the time the transition period is over, that body won't be up and running unless we actually really fast track this legislation. And I tend to believe that it's important to scrutinise these things well, but it's been whoppingly delayed and it's had two full starts. We need to get it back into House and Commons quickly and we need equivalent legislation across the four countries of the UK. Uh, and once we have all of that, then of course we need to have the policies and the fundings to deliver, deliver on that ambition. So there's a huge amount to do, um, which is why we want 
um, politicians to get on with it. But at the same time, we do want to make sure that every piece of Brexit related legislation gets the scrutiny it needs to make sure that we don't have any perverse unintended consequences. So, Emily, is there any relationship between this sort of environment bill framework with these very ambitious long term targets that the government is setting itself for um, for England uh, where it can and there's and some of the provisions in the internal market bill? I mean, is it possible for the OEP or something to declare uh, a piece of proposed legislation or regulation changes being incompatible with the long term targets? Does that does that sort of join up or are the two things just on completely separate tracks and not joining up at all? Well, I think it's always useful to separate environmental regulation into two categories. One of them is product related environmental mm -hmm. regulation and the other is non product related environmental regulation. So um, to the extent that these, these targets are, are, are largely focused on what you might describe as non-product related environmental regulation, which is basically the, the natural environment of primarily um, England, then, um, then it would be um, not as directly relevant, I think. Okay, so the OEP can't come in and act as a backstop on, uh, on some of the provisions and things like that. And um, well, I think one of the reasons that that one of the critiques of the environment bill has also been that there's not a sort of broad non-regression principle. So I'm not really sure where where that uh, backstop would come in. Well, the environment bill, of course, is still going through its uh, its parliamentary stages. Anonymous, thanks. Anonymous has also pointed out to Martin that Northern Ireland doesn't even have an Environmental Protection Act under discussion. So uh, perhaps underlining Vivian's point about Northern Ireland is a bit of a back, back liar. Um, that, that's actually quite an important point and Vivian might be able to get the clarity right. But so, so I believe under the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, there is an obligation, I think, for Northern Ireland essentially to have a statutory authority which is able to deliver some of the obligations under the European rules it's going to have to be aligned with. And it doesn't have yet an environmental protection agency equivalent to the likes of Natural Resources Wales or Nature Scotland or Natural and Environment Agency. So not only will they have to deliver the sort of governance powers of things like the European Court, um, uh, Court of Justice in terms of the OEP, they will also have to provide a body which is uh, equivalent to the likes of natural resources wells. Correct me if I'm wrong, Vivian. So, um, I mean, you do have a Northern Ireland Environmental Agency, but it is not independent uh, from uh, the government as, as the equivalent bodies are in the rest of the UK or, or the island of Ireland. So what you do have is the need to both fix the new Brexit environmental governance gaps in Northern Ireland, but also the pre-existing environmental governance gap. So that means a lot of pressure put on the Northern Irish executive to really raise uh, the standards and the governance of, environmental, uh, of the environment uh, across Northern Ireland. And as we mentioned, we don't have a cli you know, climate change act, we don't have an environmental act. Uh, so there's a lot of things to do, but uh, an assembly that is back up and running and willing to do quite a lot. Okay, I'm going to warn you all that I'm just, uh, as we wind up, I'm going to ask you all for your sort of one recommendation that you think would be most likely to trigger what we talked about in the intro to this as a race to the top on the environment rather than the, what we've been talking about mainly, which is the sort of risks and whatever. So what would be the one thing you would do? But meanwhile, I'm just going to ask Gail. Uh, you can be thinking about that as well. But Anonymous has asked whether it 
actually, as we sort of look at uh, the prospects of in greatly increased food costs, Anonymous probably knows something about the progress of the deal or not deal that we don't. But anyway, um, I just have to check whether it's from a government uh, address. But anyway, surely the UK could produce much of the produce we currently import instead of continuing with intensive meat and dairy production for export. Um, and then mentions fishery policy. Should we look to much more local production for local markets, Gail, post-Brexit? Uh, the, the UK market is, is one of the most prized food markets in the world and we want to make sure that British farmers can um, continue to be the supplier of choice for, for not only retailers but for out-of-home um, uh, consumption as well. So a lot of farmers are very optimistic about the, uh, the opportunities but until you have some clarity around the um, public policy operating environment the farmers are going to be working with them from the 1st of January, it's very, very difficult for them to actually go to the banks and, and ask for investment or to make that, uh, you know, costly investment in terms of productivity innovation that will be required. But yeah, absolutely, we are really up for making sure that, that British farmers are, are the supplier of, of choice. Okay, Anonymous, I hope you're happy with that. Uh, let's just go through our panel. Gail, do you want to pitch in on one thing that you would like to use this to, you know, yes. to mean a race to the top? Yeah, so step one, get the common frameworks in place that put in place those really basic regulatory requirements across product related rules so that we know where the, at least the baseline is and then build on, on that going forward. Okay, a vote there for common frameworks. Uh, Emily. So, um, this isn't a panacea, but I think this government has a very strong instinct towards centralization. And we see that with the treatment of devolved nations, with the courts, with the extensive use of secondary legislation. So I would think that um, having more um, decentralization would be a good way to go in terms of improving environmental governance. More decentralization. Vivian? Building on what Emily says, we have, we need proper intergovernmental relations. And because there's been a breakdown of trust between the four nations, you actually need formal institutions because informal only works if you actually trust the others. Martin. Uh, all of the above. And let's try and get an environmental derogation onto the face of the internal markets bill, uh, because that way in which um, it'll be more explicitly linked, one hopes to the wider environmental ambitions of the four countries of the UK. And are you already drafting an amendment to hand to a suitable Lord, Martin? Uh, I, through the RSPB's good offices and of course Greener UK, because we work in part with all the other NGOs, we're working hard to try and deal with this, the Environment Bill, the Agriculture Bill, the Trade Bill, the Fisheries Bill. Um, you know, as for poor old civil servants, Brexit has created a lot of work, so it has also for uh, the environmental and indeed land management community, as Gail knows too well. <laughs> Okay, well, I think that's a great point to end. So this is still, I think, very much a work in progress. There are risks, there are opportunities that can be taken. Just a reminder that in the past, the uh, actions of the devolves going ahead of England has actually raised standards in England on things like uh, uh, we've got case study of the smoking ban started first in Scotland. Uh, the carrier bag tax started first in Wales, so we don't want to suppress some of that. Um, but meanwhile, uh, I would like to thank our excellent panel. So I'd like very much to thank Emily, Vivian, 
Gail, and last but not least, Martin for the RSPB support for this event. So please tell your friends to watch again and thank all of you for watching to the end and for asking so many questions. Thanks very much indeed. And we're just going to close it all off there. Thank you and good afternoon. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.